Guides to Happiness. Welcome to episode 32. Thanks to everyone who's listened so far and welcome if you're just joining us. As always, I'm here in our virtual studio with Andrea, Chris and Kath. Hello, everyone. Hi there. Oh, we're back doing this again. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think think we have forgotten to do this, haven't we? We take a little break over Christmas and we we forget what we're doing. How many episodes have we done? A good 60 odd. We We should should know what we're we're doing doing by now, shouldn't we? Oh dear, never mind. <laughs> Chris, how are you? <laughs> right. <laughs> Probably, I don't know, too soon to say. <laughs> it's that kind of January feeling of, uh, you kind of got over that Christmas hill and things are starting to kind of dip towards February. This sounds very doom laden, doesn't it? Dip towards February and just try to keep that energy going. It's hard. I know, and it's my birthday in January, Ooh. and I think I've, prob- I've probably whinged about this before on the podcast. It's, it's just close. the worst time of year for the birthday. It is, it is, because it means that, you know, every- you have everything within a two, three week period, and then you've got nothing else to look forward to for the rest of the year. Mm. But Nothing at all. There's nothing much I can do about <laughs> all it. All kind of yeah. grade B yeah. events, need- like your children's birthdays and <laughs> anniversaries. Whatever, yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Oh dear, never mind. Maybe I should have a second birthday in July. What, the Queen? That's what, that's, that's what my family does in Australia. They have uh, Christmas in July. Mm. To, because it's it, a bit cooler. Because it's nearer to winter weather than what yeah. we've had now, nearer. 42 degrees. Yeah, yeah, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit nearer. <laughs> Andrea, what about you? How are you doing? Fine, still feeling very full. Yeah. Still, still, wow. still. <laughs> nearly a month on. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes. So something's got to change. But I have got a New Year resolution. I don't normally set them Ooh. because they're rubbish for me. They don't work. But I am <laughs> going to try and understand how my bike works so I can repair Yay! it. Because I've got a kind of in-house bike expert, and I've relied on him for seventeen years. But this year. There's a change. A change is going to happen, and I'm going to I'm going to learn how my bike works. You know, that's super. Do you know what I went? Um, I went on a puncture repair session uh, last year, and I learned how to take the front and back wheels off. I love all that sort of stuff. So, oh, you can have Revelation. fun learning how to yeah. change punches. Well, I think yeah. I just need to disassemble the bike and put it back together. I think that. Mm. <laughs> It's the, the first bit's usually fine. It's the second bit that's the, uh, the tricky yeah. bit. How many, how many extra screws and things have you, you got left over? Yeah, I'll yeah. let you know how that goes. <laughs> my father insisted when uh, my, t- my two brothers and I were 17 and he theoretically taught us how to drive. But he started off by, <laughs> by showing us how to replace a, t- a tyre on the car. Which is incredibly useful. I can't do it, but it was incredibly useful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the, the sad thing is that I think he never actually succeeded in teaching any of us how to drive. <laughs> <laughs> Which is was a whole other story. But, uh, but yes, God bless the EE as well. Other breakdown cover provided. <laughs> Well, on that note, shall we introduce this week's guest interview? Uh-huh. This week, it was great to catch up with the brilliant Sarah Bryson, who I've known for quite a few years, our paths first crossing when she worked at Children Northeast. Sarah now works as a community organiser for Citizens UK, providing training and support to communities who want to bring about social change. She told me about some of the campaigns she's been working on, including the Living Wage campaign and others around poverty and hate crime. A fascinating discussion, so enough of me talking, here's Sarah. Sarah, a very warm welcome to the Northern Guide to Happiness. How are you today? I'm good, it's great to be here and so nice to be chatting with you again. I know, twice in in a couple of weeks after quite a few years, hasn't it? We've known each other for a little while. Yeah, a long time I think. Let's not think about how long it's been. (laughs) It'll make us feel very old. (laughs) Our children count the years. It it makes it more evident of how long it's been by their rapid ageing. Yeah. Yeah. And and my oldest is now probably just an inch or two 
shorter than me. It won't be long till she's taller than me. So uh, it's not hard to do though, Alex. Really? How rude! <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, it's true. It's my totally son's true. about my son's about a foot taller than me now. I think. Oh my god! <laughs> Just sort of look up. Hello. Yeah. You have to tell him to sit down to tell him off. <laughs> so we're recording this on a Friday. It's it's the end of term. How are you feeling? Are you are you glad it's the end of term? I am. I'm really looking forward to the break. I think like everyone, it's been a really difficult year and not what we'd all hoped for. And as the winter months set in, I think, you know, it's getting a bit tougher, hasn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, not having the Christmas we'd all probably hoped that we would be having this year. Again. <sighs> Again. It feels... But uh, this this episode will be going out in January, so uh, hopefully we'll be we will be full of optimism and positivity for twenty twenty two. But uh, we'll see we'll see what happens. I think it's going to be even more grim by January. Oh, let's be honest. Thanks, thanks, Sarah. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> Has anything happened this week that you're you're happy about, or anything that you're looking forward to that uh, might bring a little bit of joy? Yeah, I think the end of the year is a, and it was an important year for us because we have our AGM and we use it. It's a bit like an awards ceremony to celebrate all the kind of leadership and actions that people have taken this year and look at people's personal development and how much they've managed to win despite the unbelievable circumstances we've been working mm. in. So, yeah, it's been really joyful and celebrating wins and campaign wins despite what's going on. Well, we may well talk about some of those campaign wins a little bit later on. But first of all, would you mind just introducing yourself? Because I know who you are, but the listeners might not. So could you just uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. My name's Sarah and I'm currently a community organiser with Citizens UK, working across Tyne and Weir. And we'll talk more about what the methodology of community organising is. But I guess who I am is somebody who's really passionate about inequality and social injustice because I grew up in poverty myself at the West End of Newcastle and know firsthand what economic inequality does to people's lives. And just being angry from a very young age that mm. the system doesn't work for the vast majority of people and didn't accept that that was down to individual failings or people not working hard enough or studying hard enough and believed that it was about systemic inequality. So from about 14, committed my life to tackling that injustice. And it's taken me a long time, decades, to work out how to tackle injustice effectively. <laughs> Largely by ruling things out, doing things and them not working and trying something else. So, you know, from protest movements to, you know, working in government as a civil servant to most recently working in children's charities, working largely in and around child poverty is what probably most people know me for, mm. um, and developing effective project-based work, but things that didn't really tackle the structural inequalities that exist. So now kind of really just focused on campaigning and how do we get to be more effective campaigners in order to win about change. So you mentioned at the top there that you spent a lot of your childhood feeling angry and you know this this podcast is all about happiness and what that means and you know also what, what unhappiness means so did did you feel do you remember feeling much happiness as, as a child or as you say was, was it more sort of angry times for you no I mean I think anger or happiness neither of them are a permanent state are they nobody can mm. be permanently happy nobody can be permanently angry yeah would be very unwell if we were but I had a very happy childhood. I think a lot of the narrative around poverty is very like a dysfunctional family with, you know, alcoholic parents and domestic abuse. And obviously it wasn't anything like that. You know, my parents were amazing. We had a great time. We just didn't have a lot. Mm. Um, so it kind of goes against the narrative in terms of what a childhood in poverty looks like from that perspective. Um, and I, I wasn't until I got older that I realised I was different than anyone else, really. It was when the Sun newspaper named and shamed my school as the worst school in Britain that you begin to realise, oof, wow. maybe things are different elsewhere. So what was that? So was that the turning point for you then? You said at 14 you sort of started your, your campaigning. Was that newspaper article the turning point for you then? 
Yeah, that was really important time when when the school was um going through a lot when they were trying. It was the first school in the country to be fresh started, but also the even though it was named as the worst school in Britain, my history teacher tried to channel my anger into something more productive, and he got me involved in a project called the North American Indian Project. So when I was fourteen, I I got sent to live on a Native American Indian reservation in South Dakota. Um, and the, it was when the American West became part of the GCSE history curriculum and it was historically inaccurate. You know, it was mm. written by white settlers. It, it yeah. just wasn't true. And these history teachers had this idea to send British students to live on different reservations and to develop GCSE resource material that was more factual. And, you know, as people from different backgrounds, I was probably the talking poor kid. And I, I got chores. I went to live in... Um, Aglala Lakota Sioux Reservation in South Dakota uh, called Pine Ridge and it changed my life obviously but primarily because it was exactly like my experience of life in the West End of Newcastle. Average life expectancy was and still is 47 because of the huge economic racial injustices that exist there and I just thought how can I like go to the other side of the world and live in a totally different cultural environment and context yet find the same problems. Still same problems, yeah. And it was kind of at that point I realised inequality was a structural problem and committed my life to dismantling it, really. Um, so that was the profound impact that it had on me and came back determined to smash the system, but I like, had no idea how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened after that then? I mean, I mainly at that point was involved in like, anti-capitalist protests went on a lot of demonstrations which I think are really important even in this you know even more so now really but just never won anything it never changed anything and got really frustrated about how can we turn that galvanized collective concern that people have into pushing forward for more change like I think one of the big lessons was the anti anti Gulf War demo you know, it was a million people, yet it didn't do anything. And I just thought, mm. oh, we've got a million people here. Surely a million people can, can make, make change difference. happen. Yeah. yeah. So how did that feel then, you know, that, that sort of constant feeling that you weren't getting anywhere? Yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? Like I was working with a lot of middle class professionals who didn't have the same sense of urgency that I did. And I just became like the pain in meetings, like going, what are we doing? We're not doing enough stop celebrating being a hundred year old like it's not a cause for celebration we failed mm. and people be like oh well you know if we become that agitational we won't get funded and you know I was kind of lost for a long time thinking oh where do I put my energies and just think I'm gonna go and work in a shop because it's just you know causing me a lot of anxiety so you're now at Citizen UK is yeah. that somewhere that you feel this is this is where I this is where I belong. This is where I need to be. I mean, I think there's no golden bullet. There's no panacea to any of these questions, is there? They're very complex and multifaceted. But I found a methodology that works. You know, I found it by taking a year out and doing a fellowship program, the Close Social Leadership Fellowship, to try and investigate models of change, and really became inspired by the living wage movement. For a couple of reasons one because it was led by cleaners themselves and my mum had been a cleaner and I thought that was right that people living with injustice should be the people at the forefront of leading the charge against that injustice but also it it has put billions of pounds back into the pockets of low-paid workers and that's what poverty is at the end of the day you know we can talk about food poverty period poverty or whatever it's about poverty it's about how much money you have And in our society today, that's about working people. It's not about unemployment and benefits. It's about people working, working hard and not earning enough to live on. And that was the one thing that I could really say that had transformed people's lives and became really inspired about the story of a a cleaner called Abdul Durant, who'd led that change in in East London. It, It didn't actually begin about wages. It began a conversation at a community level about what was putting pressure on people and their families and their communities. And what people wanted was to be able to spend more time with their loved ones. And the reason they couldn't was because they had two or three jobs. It's the only way they could survive. 
most of them were cleaners in the kind of the district in East London, the financial district where all the headquarters of the banks are. And so they kind of, the way community organising works is that you don't just talk about the problem, you, you look for a solution and you put an ask to power. So their solution was a living wage. If, if employers paid enough to live on, calculated based on the cost of living, then they would be able to have one or two jobs and have that extra time to spend with their families. So they wrote to HSBC Bank at the time. Um, obviously, they got no response. Why would, you know, the head of HSBC yeah. Bank speak to a bunch of cleaners? So they, so they organised a public action using the methods of organising. And it comes from America, really. It's not an English methodology. And, you know, Barack Obama was an organiser. Anyone's read his books. And he talks quite extensively about his time organising in Chicago. But the methods were used in the civil rights movement so Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King used those methods. And so these cleaners in East London were trained in that method and used it themselves. So they all took a one pound share in HSBC Bank. They did a shareholders action because the being a shareholder entitled them to attend the annual general meeting where all the key senior decision makers were. And they organised their community. So it wasn't just the cleaners, it was the civic institutions in that patch, the schools, the churches, the mosques, the synagogues. And a church, a, a church leader, so a priest with a dog collar on, we use that quite a lot because it, it kind of has a, makes people have a funny reaction. <laughs> it massively helps, massively helps. Um, you know, and the guy who did it was in East London. He actually now lives in Whitley Bay. We work with him really closely. He's great. So Simon got up and called the meeting to order and said, you know, I've got an urgent item I want to put on the agenda. And they said, oh, of course. And he said to Sir John Bond, who was the chief exec of HSBC Bank at the time, I've got your cleaner here. And so Abdul Durant had the floor and he said to Sir John Bond, you know, I clean your office. Do I do a good job? And he said, yeah, of course you do. And he said, so, you know, if I do a good job, why don't you pay me enough to live on? And that was the start of the movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he described that they, they, sh they walked the same corridor every day, but had two completely different lives yeah. and just really brought home in a very personal way that inequality and how that's lived out by different people. And, you know, they didn't they didn't pay a living wage straight away, but it led to the movement of now something like almost 10,000 employers nationally paying the real living wage. So, uh, you know, I, I found great inspiration from that and wanted a bit of that for the northeast really so tell me more about your work in the northeast then are you able to tell us a bit about some of the campaigns you've you've worked on you're working on up here in the northeast yeah so we launched in the end of 2015 and the methodology starts with community listening so it's people before program you don't start a campaign and then recruit people to your campaign you just start by talking with thousands of people about what's going on and what, where are the pressure points and where do we need to take action. Unsurprisingly, in the northeast, people voted to work on poverty, mm -hmm. mental health and racism, in particular the increase in Islamophobia across the mm -hmm. region since the Brexit vote. So they were the three areas, obviously all three huge, massive, big problems. Yeah. Where on earth do you start with those? And then we formed action teams around them and our members, the way I describe it, it's a bit like a trade union, but for the community rather than the workplace. Mm -hmm. So our members are civic institutions. They can't be institutions of the state. So they're schools, primary schools, secondary schools, universities, their community groups, citizens advice bureau, drug and alcohol projects, um, community groups, and then institutions of faith. So churches, mosques, synagogues, gurdwaras, etc. So they are the people that form the action teams and they you end up working with people that you would never normally work with or meet in um, your day-to-day -day life, which is another thing that I love about the work. You bring together really diverse people who are who disagree about a lot of things, but agree about the injustices in their community and agree to park what they disagree on and focus on the area that they want to change, which were those three things. And then... It's a bit like sharpening a pencil going from the problem to the solution. Mm. And this is, I think it's easy to talk about how bad things are and describe it. The hard bit is, well, okay, what's the solution? What are we going to do about and, it? Yeah. yeah. But what do we want? What is the change that we're seeking? And so we spend a lot of time strategizing around what that solution is. And it, it's not a single issue campaign. So you might start with one thing and then move on. 
So around poverty, there were two campaigns. One was to increase our number of living wage employers. At that time, we had the lowest in the whole country in the northeast region. I think we only had about 30 accredited living wage employers at that wow. time. We had no universities, no local authorities. So none of the big institutions that you would expect to be doing it. Mm. Um, and that's been a great. We've now, I think we're at almost at 180 living wage employers. So, you know, we can tangibly say how many thousand people we get in a pay rise. Yeah. We now have Newcastle University are accredited. Sunderland City Council is accredited. So that's really encouraging and hopeful that the others will follow. Um, follow. We're currently working with Sunderland University and just had a big living wage Christmas action um, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago there, which was really great, singing living wage Christmas carols. and Can, can you give us a rendition, Sarah? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I definitely don't have a singing voice. But they... Um, you know, we had Santa putting them on, on the naughty list, which is a lot of our actions are, we use a lot of humour and a lot of fun. They're not what people expect. We don't we don't just kind of shout and protest outside. Every action we take is to get an intended reaction, which is usually a seat at the table to negotiate. Um, and, you know, if you're going to pull people into public action, it, it can be hard trying to change the world. Mm-hmm. It has to be fun and enjoyable. It has to be joyful, otherwise you don't keep coming and doing it again and again. Hence the naughty list. <laughs> yeah, hence the, you know, dressing up, Santa and his elves and, um, you know, range your ears and singing songs. You know, everyone who came had a great time, even though we were freezing cold. Um, the other campaign around poverty was on free school meals, mm-hmm. and it's called Just Change, and that came from school students themselves. And we were having a conversation about how poverty affects our life and food bank usage. And one girl, Jess, in year 10 said, you know, the thing that would really change my life would be if I could have me change from me dinner money. Mm. And we said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, when I get my free school meal allowance on a daily basis, if I'm off school, when I come in the next day, it's not there. Like, where does my change go? And this is why it's so important we start with the lived experience of people, because I was on free school meals as a kid. But in my day, you would queue up and get a little ticket. And I used to sell my ticket, in all honesty, and save up the money for the weekend. (laughs) But nowadays, it's all biometric fingerprint system. So they Mm -hmm. put their fingerprint on on a Monday and they have £2.10. They come in on a Tuesday and regardless of whether they've spent Monday's allocation, they're still £2.10. If you're a kid who pays for your school dinner, you have £10 on a Monday. You don't spend it, you still have £10 on a Tuesday. So she was like, why don't I have £4.20 on a Tuesday? Because if I did, I could eat more food. Because all they can spend it on is food in the canteen. It's not like it's cash. It's a a credit system. So we said, oh, that's a really good point. Like, let's raise it with the school. Let's see if we can get that to happen. The head teacher had obviously never thought about it. Because why would you if you weren't a kid living on free school Mm -hmm. meals? And he said, I've got no idea where the money goes. Let me try and find out. So after a long time, it took ages to work out, but we we then found that the money was retained by the provider of the meals as profit. Now, that's a complex system. It can be a private provider like Chartwells, or it might be the school itself if they're the own meal provider, or it might be a local authority. And Northumbria University did some research and they found that £88 million a year is lost in this way. Wow. Exactly. So we did a campaign for the kids to get their free school meal money back. The young people led as well themselves. And we've got many schools to change the system. And in one school, there's an amazing executive head called Maura Regan, who runs a MAT trust of Catholic schools. She's a really great woman. She understood it straight away and changed her school systems. And in one school in one year, it was £17,000 that went back to young people to spend on food. So we always say, if you get justice, you don't need charity. If you mm-hmm. get the justice that you should have, then you don't need a food bank. You know, the money is already allocated there. So that was poverty. Around um, other things, the racism and Islamophobia one was largely experienced by Muslim women and those that were visibly identifiable as Muslim women. So wearing a headscarf, a burqa, mm-hmm. or a niqab. And I remember meeting a bunch of women, them sharing heartbreaking experiences of being you know, 
had things water thrown on them, having their headscarf pulled off. And it was largely happening on public transport, but also in supermarkets, doctor surgeries, public places that mm. should have been able to respond to it. And, and be safe places as well for everyone. Absolutely. And, you know, they would report things to the bus drivers and say, look, this has happened. And the bus driver would be like, what do you want me to do about it? Sometimes they would experience further racism and be like, well, if you're going to come dressed like that, what do you expect? Mm-hmm. But other times would be like, just get off the bus then, you know. So it was leading to people just not feeling safe, not using public transport. You know, I, I worked with a lot of Muslim women at the time that said, look, I'd just drive. If I've got to go anywhere, I, I can't use public transport. It's not worth the risk. So we had a meeting with Nexus about developing a hate crime charter for public transport. They have a coordinating role across Ariba, Stagecoach, Go Northeast. And they said, yeah, of course, we'd love to work with you all. Nothing happened. Mm-hmm. It was in draft form for a year. And we said, you know, we're going to have to take a public action to get the reaction that we want, which is the publication of this thing. And so we we kind of borrowed the Reclaim the Night movement from the women's movement and did a Reclaim the Metro action, where we had hundreds of people wearing a hijab in solidarity to experience what it's like firsthand, um, travelling from the monument to Whitley Bay to have fish and chips, which is obviously the very British thing to do. Of course, of course. Um, and it was at a time of heightened tension. And the weeks before that, there'd been protests to ban the burqa at the monument. We got threatened by the far right that they were going to attack it if we went ahead with it. And, you know, what do we do in that circumstance? We we strategized and thought carefully. And the women, largely women from Newcastle Central Mosque who led it, thought really carefully about that. And were we going to be scared to be on our own streets or were we going to have to take a stand? Of course, we're willing to take a stand, but then how do we protect the hundreds of people that were going to come? Um, it was amazing. We got agreement from the Bishop of Newcastle, the Bishop of Durham, that clergy would come in full clerical gear and form a human chain around people at the monument so that if the far right did appear, you know, it would be interesting. What would they do? They, you know, mm. they claim they want a British Christian country. What would they do with all these with all these Christians yes. <laughs> protecting <Yeah. laughs> Muslim women, like what? Well, oh. as, <laughs> um, as it happened, you know, they didn't turn up. I don't know if they did and then went away or what, but it wasn't necessary. But it was that solidarity that's so important in organising as well of being willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with with others to show your support when a community is under attack. And, you know, we said to Nexus, we're going to publish, we're going to do this on the Saturday. You either publish it and it's a celebration or you don't. And the press that are attending will be asking questions. They weren't very happy with this. You know, I'm not a very popular person, (laughs) Alex, in the city. Um, But, you know, they published it on the Wednesday before the action on the Saturday. And we had a big celebration on the Saturday. And it hasn't obviously eradicated racism and Islamophobia, but it's began to build a movement of resistance against what we're experiencing and the charter's in place but it has to be implemented there's plans for training for staff there's making sure that people in the community can know and understand what to expect should it happen there's further work happening on with supermarkets where we've had similar incidents so you don't just stop there you, you win something and then you move on and you keep putting that pressure on because you know frederick douglas who lived in Newcastle for a while, who was a you know a slave who fought against the abolition of slavery, fought for, not against the abolition of slavery. He, um, he, he used to say, you know, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. Mm. And we're trying to make that demand and create that pressure for justice because just asking for justice, you, it never happens or very, if very rarely nicely. happens. Yeah. <laughs> or winning the moral argument I tried that for a very long time. Doesn't happen either. You have to apply pressure. So we we try and work out where that pressure point might be. We do power analysis and try and think where where should we throw our weight behind strategically to get the change that we seek. And it just works. I think it works really well. And we've applied that around mental health as well. So we had a big Citizens Commission on Mental Health. We had public hearings across Newcastle, Durham and Gateshead. It, it was such a complex, multifaceted problem that we ended up with about 21 actions, some of them very small and local, like 
young people wanting to redesign the CAMS clinic in North Shields, mm -hmm. to change in waiting times at the RVI pharmacy. And now it's now become a national campaign to get school-based counselling in every school in England because that's a statutory obligation in Scotland and um, Wales and Northern Ireland, but not in England. Not in England. Mm. So the team that are organising around that have, have done great. They're, they've got support from the NASUWT Teaching Union to back the campaign nationally. They held a parliamentary reception a couple of weeks ago, working with one of our MPs, Nick Brown, cross-party cross party one. So they're, you know, they're looking at national legislative change. So sometimes the change is very local and sometimes it's, it's very national but I can honestly say that I've won more change in the last five years doing this than I had in the previous 20 odd years before just raging against the system. <laughs> so how does that feel does that does that bring you contentment happiness knowing that you have helped this change come about? Um, it brings some happiness but I think the world is in such a mess mm. that you can't that I can't say that I'm happy about it because I think when we started Citizens as a movement, we couldn't have envisaged what the world would look like now. No. We just couldn't have envisaged not just a global pandemic, but the you know the the economic recession, the increase in institutional racism, those really deeply entrenched problems that we have and how they play out. Like you know, they seem to be getting worse and not better. So I can't say that I'm happy because I think there's still a lot of work to do. But what brings me a lot of happiness from it is seeing seeing people who've never been involved in social justice movements before realise that they're community leaders and that they can do something about it. Because I think we're sold a myth. We're sold a myth that like the only people that can change the world are these amazing charismatic leaders. And it's usually a man. Yeah. yeah, it's usually a man. Even those that I find inspiring, you know, from the civil rights era, Nelson Mandela, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, they were the figureheads of a movement, but they were not the movement. You know, if you look at the people who were the chief strategists of the civil rights movement, most people have never heard of them. But they were there and they played a crucial part and they were mm -hmm. they were organisers on the ground, you know, organising their communities. So I think when I start working in a community, usually people think there's no hope, there's, there's no way we can change anything. Or that they're not the ones to do it, perhaps. That, as you say, it should be coming from somebody else. Yeah, I think a lot of people are deeply unhappy about the state of the world, but just think, what can I do? There's nothing yeah. I can do. And people feel like that and are cynical that change is possible. And I guess what makes me happy and gives me hope is that I think it is. It is possible to bring about change. And here's a methodology. It's just one of many, but here is one that we can train people in and teach you the tools of how to do it and seeing seeing people then take that role in their community to go you know what we're gonna we're gonna be a force for good in our area and we're not just gonna have a crisis response to problems like mm. set up a food bank i think i'm not knocking food banks at all when people are hungry they need food but i think a lot of us get into that habit of a crisis response a stick and plaster response of okay let's set up a food bank let's you know let's send tents and clothes to refugee camps but it's not actually solving the problem and what we're about is saying okay let's take this a step forward and how do we prevent the need for a food bank in the first place let's take action on that instead of sending tents to syria let's look for the legal routes out for people and let's you know citizens uk sent people into calais and registered people that had relatives in the UK or were under 18 and had a legal right to get across because that's what people want not a tent to sleep in a, a refugee camp you know but when you're faced with those huge societal problems you do what you can mm -hmm. and sometimes you think all I can do is donate food to the food bank yeah um and and I'm not saying that's a bad thing but I think we need a we kind of need to up our game because we're up against it in terms of injustice at the moment and I often feel that way you know that the issues feel too big for me to help and make a difference so what could someone like myself or some you know someone listening to this episode what can they do in terms of getting involved in the work that you do I think I mean I think you're right individually we can't do anything 
And one of the big revelations for me with the methodology of organising was having a discussion about power. And no one had ever talked to me about power, really. Like, if you want change, you need power. And I individually, you individually, don't have any power. But you and I together have a bit more than we did on our own. And you and I, with 10 other people, have a lot more. You and I, with 100 other people, now we're talking, now we might be able to get something happening. So I think if people are feeling overwhelmed, they need to engage with their wider community. We work through civic institutions, so be that your school, be that your workplace, join your union, be that your faith-based institution, if you're a person of faith, whatever it is, you know, have conversations with people in your wider community and bring them together to do some change. We offer training on community organising, so, you know, go and look on our website, Facebook page, Twitter account, whatever you use, <laughs> and, um, you know, drop us a line and we'll give you community organising training locally, free of charge, and get involved in the alliance of people coming together to have even more power. Usually our events are about a 1,000 people at a go to really put pressure on decision makers to to move on things that we we want to see change happen on i said to you when when we met i'm going to check it out and i have been on have been on the website i've been looking at all the stuff that they do and yeah as you say it's it's quite hard as an individual sometimes to know what you can do that's going to make a positive impact so uh yeah i'd yeah encourage everyone to look at the citizen uk website and and see uh see about the training sort me out with some training will you sarah of course i'll send you <laughs> no, i've said it on the podcast report. now <laughs> you're gonna have to do it it's really Absolutely. good it's really good fun the training you know it's not like a typical training but nothing at citizens is like a typical anything to be fair <laughs> but would you have it any other way you know well no because other things haven't worked you know we have to be real <laughs> with ourselves at time and go did that work no so you know you know as we said at the top of the interview i've I've known you for a while, uh, probably about 10 years or so. And yeah, I think we first came across each other when you were working at Children North East. So you've been in the community sector for as long as I've known you and obviously longer. So it's something you're obviously passionate about. Why, why is that? Well, like I say, it's because of my own lived experience, mm. experiencing inequality firsthand and trying to find a place that would enable change to happen and kind of just eliminating place things really. You know, I think what brings more, all of us greatest happiness is other people mm-hmm. in connection to people. It's not materialistic things. Again, we're sold that thing, isn't it? Buy this cream or buy this outfit or a new pair of shoes or a new car, whatever. None of that gives us any happiness. There's even been studies, haven't there, on how long that happiness lasts and it's very yes. short lived. Yes. You always then have to buy the next pair of shoes or the next car. <laughs> but what brings you happiness is people, isn't it? Our family, our friends and our wider community. And I've always felt really connected to my wider community. I've always been active in it. I've always been a governor of a school. Gosh. <laughs> for too many Glad years for punishment. now. <laughs> too many years. Um, you know, I I'm on a chair West End Women and Girls Centre, chair trustees mm-hmm. there, um, on the board at the Baltic. Because I just think, you know, you have to get stuck in in your community. It's what enriches mm-hmm. our lives. And I'm, I'm, you know, privileged that I have the time to be able to commit to things. And not everyone does, usually because they're working too much or too hard. Um, so, yeah, community is really important to me. And time with other people is what brings me the greatest happiness. Well, that was going to be my next question was what, what brings you happiness? What, what is happiness to you? So is it, is it people and community? Yeah, people and community and people and community thriving. Mm. I think there's so much lost talent in our community because of the inequality people face, mm-hmm. you know, be that racism or poverty. You know, you just think if people, if those barriers weren't in their way, what would they be what contributing? They yes. You know, yeah. I always think like the, the cures for COVID and cancer exist in those communities if only people are given a fair crack at it, really. Because, you know, a lot of people do have those opportunities. They're just a tiny minority, really. So, yeah, I want that, that flourishing of people makes me happy and seeing people do the things that they want to do and do it well. And, you know, yeah, like everyone, my family, time with my family and time with my friends, 
mm-hmm. swimming, the arts, dancing, <laughs> all of the things we haven't been able to do much of over the last 18 months. Tell me about it, yeah. What what sort of swimming? Wild swimming or in, in a pool, in a heated pool? Yeah, I mean, I like heated pool swimming. I have to be, you know, honest. Being freezing cold is not much fun, although my swimming pool at the minute's boiler's broke and it is a bit like wild swimming. Oh, no. <laughs> We've had a few wild swimmers on the podcast, actually, and, and they talk about this, yeah, this exhilaration that they get from being in the cold water. And, uh, yeah, like you, that doesn't sound like a good time for me, but for them, that's what they do to get happiness. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hats off to them, it's too cold for me. I'd, I'd need a, I'd need about five wetsuits on to even feel remotely warm. <laughs> is a, is it a concept that you think much about happiness? Is it something that you actively work on, or is it just something that just kind of bubbles on in the background? I think I'm more in the anger zone than the happy zone. I have to be honest. <laughs> like you know, we kind of try and channel anger as a force for good because I think it has quite a lot of negative associations, doesn't it? The use of the word mm. anger. And we talk about it a lot in our training. But, like, quite frankly, if you're not angry at the minute, are you even alive? Like, how can you be alive at this moment in time? Fair point. And not be angry. Like, Mm. hello. If, you know, this, when I I went to, um, I was in America at the time of the protests outside the White House when Donald Trump took um, office. And those signs that people had of, like, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Uh, I think that's so true right now at, at this moment in time. So how you know how do you use that en- energy of anger for positive social change? Mm. Because we th- we teach in our training that that's what you need to be able to create create change. Because I have passions. I'm passionate. I'd love to learn languages. I'm really passionate about traveling. I'd love to learn more languages. My partner is bilingual. Speaks Shona. We've lived together now for five years. I still can't speak Shona. I keep saying every year, my New Year's resolution, I'm going to learn to speak Shona. So when I'm in Zimbabwe, I can speak with people. Have I done it? No. But it's my anger that gets me out on a Saturday morning in the cold to sing Christmas carols at a university to pay a living wage. And it's it's because of that anger. That's the drive that drives that's us. That's what motivates you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I'm just a bit passionate about it, I, you know, it's probably unlikely to happen so i think although i'm in the anger zone that's not a bad thing i think it, it anger think can be really a force interesting for good. yeah i've never thought about that before actually but that's a really interesting uh, way of looking at it yeah. and it's not burning hot rage although i do have that on occasion it's you know processed controlled anger at, mm. at injustice mm. i think you'd make a good role of derby player sarah oh yeah, come join, come join the Castle Roller Derby. <laughs> <laughs> We're not an angry bunch, but we, uh, yeah, full contact sport. It's a great way to, uh, if you've had a bad day at the office. <laughs> I don't want to expend that anger on sport. I want to expend it on social change. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> so how do you maintain positive mental well-being? Does, does sometimes the anger get too much do you I mean as you were saying you know before about the world being a pretty rough awful place at the minute how do you how do you process that I suppose and and not you know what am I trying to say yeah how how do you maintain your positive well-being when you think about those sorts of things because I'm doing something about it I think it can be negative if you're just sitting at home shouting at the tv or you know being a keyboard warrior and shouting on online on social media how awful it is but I think the thing that makes a difference is that we're out there trying to change it and that makes you feel positive that okay things aren't good but my belief that I can do something about it and that collectively we all can do something about it and we are taking action you know sometimes it's it's hard it's not mm-hmm. always positive, you know, not going to lie. Sometimes you think we're never going to win this or you get worried. Like when you're worried about people's safety, you know, that, oh, the women that I've been working with over the last year are going to be physically attacked if we mm-hmm. go ahead with this action. You know, it terrifies you. You don't want to put people at risk of danger. But, you know, the solidarity that was shown to enable that to happen gives you hope that the vast majority of people are actually decent human beings 
and don't believe in, ju- in injustice and are willing to do something about it. So I think, yeah, doing something, doing something is what keeps me, keeps me sane. Well, on that note, it's been absolutely fascinating listening to everything that you've been doing. And uh, yeah, I hope one day maybe I'll get involved in something. I've said it there. Well, I've already signed you up for the training. And Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but Sarah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Let's not leave it so long to catch up again. And the work that you're doing at Citizen UK is so important and really, really interesting to hear all about it. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Alex. So that was Sarah. What did people think? What a fantastic interview. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. Um, Absolutely riveted from start to finish. One thing that shocked me really when I was listening to it was the school dinner experience, mm-hmm. how the money was not being spent by the children, but wasn't being returned. And I was absolutely floored by that. And the fact that they they won the case to get that system changed. Yeah. So that is the power of citizen action, really going from a single example like that of that person who worked out that a pound of the dinner money wasn't coming back to them to Mm -hmm. that huge change so it was Mm -hmm. it was shocking and inspirational all at the same time Andrea what about you yeah I I, like Kath you know every fiber of Sarah's being is about change and I and I had heard of of Sarah all good things so I was really excited to listen to this interview and I think like you Kath you know there were so many you know from from the women who didn't feel safe traveling on public transport to kind of the shocking incidents really a complete invasion of of their privacy an attack of their culture and I guess reflecting back I think on sort of my own school days and adulthood and and what you witness and what it means to be an active participant it just it just brought to the fore all of those things. And I really liked her articulation that actually we are yeah. we are powerless alone, but collectively we are really powerful. And it might seem like a really obvious thing to say, yes. but I think so many people are struck with not knowing what to do and, and how to do it. So there's something really instructive and brilliant about this interview as well, which I, I really enjoyed. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Chris, how about you? The thing that really struck home for me when she was talking about basically the fact that you're never going to understand poverty unless you've lived it. And that kind of got me thinking about how people sharing stories and you know people getting their voices out there and how easy it is for somebody like me who is from privilege. I am in privilege now. Um, I was thinking that you know this year when my laptop died, which I needed to do this podcast, I got myself a new laptop and didn't really think about it Mm. um there's a whole range of stories and people people's voices out there that aren't getting heard because of structural things like that like you andrea i I was kind of really struck by this whole thing about kind of collective action and the importance of allyship Mm. um and that image of the muslim woman being surrounded by christian clergy to protect them I thought was it was really really struck me. I wasn't at that event. I didn't see it, but you know, it's, it's kind of left a a really important image. And I think that's a a real thing to reflect on for everybody. It's kind of well, even if you're not in this situation, what can you do? What can you bring to it? Even if it's just to listen to you know somebody tells you that they're they're experiencing injustice, listen to them, pay attention because it's important. It might not be important to you, but it's certainly important to them. Yeah, yeah. I could have listened to Sarah for hours. Mm easily <laughs> but yeah it was great to catch up and just hear about everything that, that's going on and yes Andrea I was I think that was my one of my questions towards the end when I was like you know often you know you sit there watching the news and you you, you want to do something but you don't know what the right thing to do is mm. uh, and then she used that description of well yeah you on your own can't do anything but but you and me we're then stronger and then you and me and then two other people and so on and so on and that that building of, of, a, of a community of action was an interesting point for me to sort of take away, I think. Can I bring in another example of when mm. she was talking, when she talked about the HSBC board meeting, annual oh, general yes. meeting. 
<laughs> I just had so yeah. many mental pictures there and, you know, speaking truth to power, the claw thing. Oh, just incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. wish I'd been in that room. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what a powerful question to ask. Do I do a good job for you? Yes. So why don't you pay me enough to live on? Just stunned. There's no answer to that. It was amazing. Thank you very much, everybody. And thank you, Sarah, for that brilliant interview. If you've been inspired by this podcast, then we would love to hear from you. We love hearing your stories and opinions and what happiness means to you. You can get in touch via email, hello at thenorthernguidestohappiness.co.uk. Or you can find us on Twitter at North Happiness and Instagram and Facebook at Northern Happiness. We're really glad to be spreading joy and happiness around the Northeast through this podcast, thanks to funding from the National Lottery Community Fund and the Newcastle COVID Fund. So thank you so much to our funders for their support. You might recognise our guest for next time, Andy Haddon, whose social enterprise Big River Bakery featured on the Hairy Bikers recent Go North series. We met in the bakery itself, which uh, added to the ambiance of the recording. Um, And we had a great chat about the background to the bakery getting started and why it's such an important part of the community in Shieldfield. So you'll hear me ask Andy questions like this. So tell me about Big River Bakery then. And hear him give answers like this. It was a supermarket. It was derelict for about 10 years. So it was quite mucky when we came in. So we did a crowdfunder, rounded up the money. So it was a bit like a scrap man running around for eight years, getting bits of equipment wherever I can and <laughs> storing it wherever I could and just building up bits of kit. And then we got the crowdfunder and different bits of uh, funding, loans, all sorts to do the building up. And yeah, so it is unique, I think, in the UK, if not more wide, to have this production bakery of a decent size, uh, a shop and cafe, and the really special thing is there's a training space for employability programs, for dealing with people, with, working with people with different issues, uh, school kids, young and old. So it's quite powerful just to have this space that it, it, uh, integrates different elements at the same time. So we've reached the end of another episode. We hope you're enjoying listening to the Northern Guide to Happiness. Take care and see you all again next week for another episode. Thank you.